I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Do you like my advertising voice? (laughs) Don't really know why I did any of that. Um, But seriously, welcome to another episode. Um, Very excited about today's episode, today's conversation. I am not going to record a long intro like I normally do, which a lot of you do say you like, to be fair. I'm very self-conscious sometimes of like talking for 20 to 30 minutes before I get into the conversation, but I get good feedback about it. So hopefully you guys like it. And I like the feedback. Thank you for, thank you for telling me so that I can serve you better. Um, because really this podcast is so much about you guys. Um, it would not really be much of anything without you guys. Uh, just spent, um, the past couple weeks doing two amazing patron-led workshops, speaking of the fact that this podcast wouldn't be much without you. Um, as a part of my Patreon perks, um, I offer patron-led workshops. So those of you who are a part of this community, who donate money, um, if you are, have a skill or you're working on a skill, um, I allow you to host a workshop for the other patrons and, um, they're donation based and we just did two of them, uh, breath work with my friend Eli and then one with Ian, um, about how to become a more confident creator. And it's just so nice to share space with all of you and share knowledge with all of you and help uplift all of your voices. And I truly probably sound like a broken record. Um, but I'm just so thrilled that this community has flourished. Um, and I'm so grateful for all of you giving it value and depth and um, for all of your insight and your feedback and your vulnerability and sharing. Um, for those of you that like would like to become more of a part of the community, Patreon is definitely the place to do that. Um, if you donate a little bit of money per month on Patreon, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, you not only help me create this podcast, um, help support me in the time and energy it takes to put this out, the equipment, all of that, etc., um, but also in exchange, I offer a ton of perks. Um, the ones I'm actually excited about all of them. I'm not going to pick favorites, but, uh, certainly the ones that involve the community. We have a patron only discord server. There are about 70 people on there now. And we have a range of topics that we discuss from sex and relationships to spirituality, to psychology, to gardening and food, health and wellness. It just goes on and on. Um, and it's so nice to check in there every day and see all of you, just creating your own connections. Um, and, uh, as I mentioned, the workshops as well have been really fun. Our book clubs are amazing. Um, going to announce the next book club in the next month or so. Um, but yeah, lots of opportunities for you guys to meet each other, um, for me to get to know you better 
and really to just, I don't know, create this community in real time. Um, I know a lot of us are doing so many things virtually and via technology these days, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing how this community grows in like physical space. Um, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know sort of how obsessed I am but, uh, with the combination of like beliefs and values and then how we can take those things and actually create something tangible out of them, right? Not just sit in chairs at a conference and talk about what we want the world to be, but actually get our hands dirty and build the world we want um, and really showcase for other people how much room there is for like unconventionality and for um, bucking the system, even within the system to some extent, right? Like how how far away from the cultural narrative and standards and expectations can we go while still like quote unquote living in this culture? Um, so I see you guys doing that already and helping me do it. And I cannot wait to see how that grows and expands in real time. Um, and I think I said this last time, but looking forward to us all sitting around a crowded table in Colorado where I live or somewhere where you live, where you're creating your own world and just sort of have this network of, of like-minded people and create different kinds of communities. Um, so yeah, patreon.com slash if you would like to learn more about all of that. I promised you I wouldn't do a long intro this time, so I'm going to keep to my word. What I will say, though, is that there are a ton of conversations coming up on the podcast that are going to be extremely politically incorrect and taboo and unconventional and nuanced and, you know, like I always do, opting out of the status quo, opting out of the black and white narrative. Um, I feel like this conversation is like a good primer for the ones that are about to come out. Um, so if you're super sensitive, if you're super PC, quote unquote woke, this podcast is probably not for you. Um, and uh, save yourself the time and the energy and the trigger. Just stop listening now. Um, or if you're open to it, continue listening. But you are warned. Um, yeah, I'm really excited. We're going to have, I'm having a lot of conversations about um, race and gender and sexuality and um, cancel culture. And yeah, lots of stuff that people don't really like talking about. And I'm going to do it. We're going to have these conversations. So I appreciate all of your support. I was just posting in the Discord server the other day, like, how terrifying these conversations are are to have in general. But knowing that I have it's not like all of you, um, I definitely get some hate mail sometimes, but most of you are really cool and are really like me and really open and sort of hungry for these different conversations. And I feel so much more confident and so much more secure knowing that you guys are there. Um, you know, at first when I started this podcast, it was a lot of it was in response to the Me Too movement. And I had a lot of nuanced thoughts about that. And there really weren't people critiquing this stuff that much then. For those of you that have been here with me for a while, I started the podcast in October of 2018, um, and it's such a relief, not just within our community, but in the broader community to start to see people start critiquing some of these sort of identitarian social justice movements, um, but that really wasn't the case before, and I was going to have these conversations anyway, I was having these conversations anyway, but I definitely feel a little bit more confident taking them even a bit farther now than I did before, simply because you guys are here and because the broader culture and community, at least in some pockets, seems ready and willing to discuss these things. So 
we're going to bring a lot of those conversations to the podcast and I hope they, I hope you enjoy them. I hope they challenge you a little bit. I hope they make you a little bit uncomfortable because I think that's how we all grow by being a little uncomfortable and squirmy and trying to figure out, okay, well, why am I uncomfortable and which direction do I go in? Conflict is, in my opinion, a beginning, not an ending. A trigger is an invitation, not something to run away from. So thank you all for being here. I am going to play you in today with a song by Carsey Blanton, who is a friend of a real friend and a friend of the podcast. She was on the podcast really early on, like within the first 10, 15 episodes, perhaps. So if you'd like to listen to that, it was really, really good. We talked a lot about sexuality and um, what we find attractive and unattractive <laughs> in the population of millennial men. Um, great conversation. She's a wonderful musician. And uh, I thought the song was appropriate to play you in to today's podcast, but also really as a primer for the rest of the podcasts that are coming, um, really just thinking about like, what are we trying to do here as far as affecting change? And are we being virtuous and kind? Doesn't mean we can't lead with anger sometimes and lead with passion, but um, ultimately, what are we doing? Are we really seeking justice or are we trying to seek compensatory injustice? Uh, and the song really speaks to that. So that's what we'll play you in with. Again, if you would like to support the podcast, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is the place to do that. One thing that I also never mention is that you can leave a review of the podcast on uh, iTunes if you do listen through um, uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, just scroll down past all the episodes, leave some stars in a review. That helps the podcast show up more in search results and in rankings um, and just makes it a lot easier for people to find, which is the ultimate goal that we grow this community as big as we possibly can. Not too big, just big enough until we find all the weirdos that belong here. Um, so yeah, that's a great free way to support the podcast as well. Again, I love hearing from all of you, whether that's over on Instagram, you can find me at anya.cots, uh, send me a message there or send me an email, anyacots um, at gmail.com. It's A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. All right. Enjoy this song, enjoy this conversation, and I will catch you on the other side. Jesus Christ was a handsome man. He had nothing to hide. He said, give bed to the hungry. Bring the homeless inside Jesus Christ was a dangerous man That's the way that he died Saying, be good to the people you love Love everybody alive Be good to the people Be good to the people Be good to the people 
So I'm here with Deepa, and I am very excited to have her on the show today. Um, I discovered her social change ecosystem map, as I'm sure a lot of you have probably seen it, (laughs) circulating around the interwebs. Um, And it was just really refreshing for me to see that because I feel like I talk about these ideas that we all sort of have a unique role to play um, in creating change and creating a different world. Uh, and I feel like when I looked at your little map, it was like, oh my gosh, she put it into actual words that make sense. And <laughs> this is so much better than my sort of going on and on and rambling about it. Um, so I wanted to have, and then after that, I sort of looked into the work that you did and was just really inspired by the way that you approach these things. So I wanted to have you on the show and share your insight with my audience. Um, so if we, why don't we start with you? Why don't you just talk a little bit about yourself and what in your life sort of drove you to do the work that you do now? What was your um, inspiration there and how did you get started? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to to be here. So, um, you know, I think that the work that I do, which is really around justice and equity and inclusion can probably be traced back to some experiences I had when I was younger. Um, I'm an immigrant. I moved to the wonderful state of Kentucky from, uh, everyone has that reaction, um, <laughs> from, 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 uh, Kerala, India. So mm. it was a bit of a, a culture shock as you can imagine. And this was in the mid eighties. And so, um, really went through a lot of experiences that I think a lot of immigrant children go through in terms of feeling, excluded, um, experiencing bullying, a lot of othering and seeing that, you know, my parents were also subjected to that as well. And my younger brother. And so I think those experiences of being othered, of not belonging, of feeling excluded really kind of, um, made me more curious and more interested in understanding how and why that happens and how to prevent that from happening. And so I think my own journey, in terms of social change work is really um, rooted in those very formative experiences and um, continues to be something that, you know, I look back on even now. Right. Um, Yeah. Do you, I've, I've lived abroad for some of my life and I, I studied gender and sexuality in school, which ended up with me sort of looking at a lot of social issues from like a cross-cultural perspective and recognizing that like the way that we see or approach things in America is just one way to look at things. And I'm curious if you sort of bring that kind of cross-cultural lens to your work here as well. And um, how does that inform the work that you do here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think that if you're somebody who has been either exposed to different cultures, backgrounds, ways of thinking, communities, right, your worldview is going to get that much more expansive and also nuanced. And you develop a critical lens that maybe you didn't have before. So certainly, you know, the ways that I look at issues around, um, you know, what uh, social issues are around us, right? So whether it's access to basic benefits, Benefits, whether you know it is the rights of people who are undocumented, or the ways in which we um, need to have culturally and linguistically accessible services for people who don't speak English well, who are still English language learners, so many of 
where I stand on those issues and how I experience those issues come from the experiences that I've had or the people that I know have had. And so you end up having a more complex understanding. It isn't just so black or white, right? You actually think about, okay, um, if we are rolling out a vaccine, as we are right now in this country, right? Um, we have to also think about people who can't access that vaccine. And that includes people who might be undocumented, it includes the working poor, it includes people who don't speak English well, it includes people who don't have access to a computer to make their appointments. And so how do you look at these issues through the lenses of um, different communities and different backgrounds so that then the ways in which you solve those issues actually take into consideration how various communities are experiencing their lives in the United States. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about the building movement project? That's what it's called, right? Your, um, yeah. And what, what you sort of do in that realm and, yeah. No. So um, so I work at the Building Movement Project. It's a national nonprofit organization, and the organization really seeks to provide um, tools such as research and reports, as well as um, trainings, workshops for individuals, organizations, and networks that are engaged in social change and movement building. So for example, the, um, the work that we do on reports, uh, one that we just did, last fall was actually looking at the way in which um, nonprofit leaders of color are navigating the pandemic and systemic mm -hmm. racism. And so that report contains research and anecdotal interviews that give you a landscape as to how these frontline um, organizations are dealing with the moment right now and also what they need in this moment to survive over the long haul. Um, Another example is our project on solidarity practice. So we really believe that transformative solidarity is one of the strategies to get to inclusion, equity, and justice. And so we um, train especially young people who are um, sort of emerging leaders in terms of understanding what does solidarity mean beyond the buzzword and a hashtag? How do you actually integrate it into your daily life? Um, what are the complexities around being an ally or a co-conspirator. So we do a series of trainings called Solidarity Schools for young mm -hmm. folks. And then the a third example is the social change ecosystem framework, which you mentioned earlier, also a framework that enables people to understand and identify how they get involved in causes and campaigns that they're interested in by really aligning with their values and their roles. Yeah. I'd love for you to talk more about the inspiration for that uh, the social change ecosystem and how, um, that got created and, uh, what you're sort of, you know, for me again, it was always, and I, I know this from also the people that listen to this podcast, the sort of like confusion and frustration of people that are like, I care really deeply about these things and I want to help, but there's something about what I'm being asked to do or expected to do that feels inauthentic or performative and like, I don't know how to navigate the like, oh, someone told me to do this, so I should do it versus maybe I can find my own way, but then maybe I'm going to get shamed um, for not doing what everyone else is doing. So I'm I'm interested to hear how that all came about and whether you experienced any pushback on it or whether people were pretty open to it. Just like I haven't really seen anyone else talk about it in such clear, inspiring language. So I'm just interested to hear the like sort of creation story and what that was like for you. 
Yeah, well, I'm so um, appreciative that it resonated with you and grateful that you're featuring it. Um, so the origin story of that ecosystem framework is, you know, one that um, is like many tools and resources um, has gone through an iterative process. So I think, you know, Basically, whenever I um, go out and speak to folks about issues um, like, you know, the Muslim ban or immigration or, you know, racial justice, the question that I often get is, I totally agree with everything you've said, and it's really overwhelming, and I don't know what to do. I don't really know how to get started. And so oftentimes it has felt like people are looking for a roadmap or sort of here are a set of things to do, right? But just like you said, you can't just like take a list of a task list from someone else and just integrate it into your life if you're not really thinking about it deeply and connecting to it. So that's yeah. that's one sort of thread. Another thread is that even though I have been involved in social change work for 20 plus years, um, particularly I would say over the last like five to six years, I have felt very overwhelmed at times. Um, you know, specifically, I think um, when we were dealing with the separation of children from families um, during the Trump administration, I think that really jarred a lot of people. Um, I'm also a parent. And so it was something that was very difficult for me to even grasp that we were doing this as a country. Um, but I also felt like I was on this seesaw um, during those months. Like I would wake up feeling really outraged after reading the news. Um, and then I would feel really numb and overwhelmed and confused because I didn't know how to do anything about a situation that seemed way out of my control, right? Like how right. could I actually influence that particular policy or do anything about it? And mm -hmm. so um, it was it was those two threads, you know, one, you know, recognizing that folks, including myself, are looking for like, how do I plug in? And then secondly, that oftentimes there are these like rolling crises and um, watershed moments where you are jolted into I need to do something. And oftentimes you really feel very overwhelmed. And so those those experiences led me to actually, um, you know, I think a lot of folks say this, but you go back to what you know, right, you start close in. And for me, that's starting starting close in was really looking at how um, folks have shown up in different moments of crisis that I have been privy to, that I've either witnessed or I've been part of in communities. And I recognize that people shown up, showed up um, in those moments, um, not based on their job title, but really based on their roles and how effective they were in moving an issue along or getting engaged with other folks really depended on how effective they were in terms of playing their roles. And so that is really what led to this idea of, you know, we are all interconnected, right? We are part of an ecosystem. And that's one of the components of this framework, um, that just one or two people by themselves are not going to be able to impact huge social change, right? Um, that it takes a group of us. And so the right. ecosystem could be like your workplace or your neighborhood, your college campus, um, but identifying that ecosystem. And then the second component of the framework is our values. So oftentimes, you know, we are clear about our values, but we're not necessarily living into them. 
So how do we kind of get in right relationship as a lot of indigenous elders talk about? How do you get in, how do your actions get in right relationship with your values is another part of the framework. And then the third part is identifying a role or a couple of roles that you feel like you either are naturally drawn to or that you want to build towards. And there are 10 roles that are um, part of this framework for folks to at least get started with. Awesome. Um, Yeah, I would love to get into the roles if you're comfortable sort of walking through them and giving some examples of what they are. Um, But I'm also curious if you sort of see maybe just because of the way our society is constructed, because of social media, that maybe what we are sort of tasked with or what um, appears most frequently in the public realm as far as what we can do. Like, are there some of these roles that you feel like we focus on much more than the others and and what those things are and um, how we can sort of figure out what the other ones are, even if they're not as readily talked about? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we think about social change, oftentimes, you know, when I ask people, um, when I use the word social change, what comes to mind? And people often say a rally, a protest, a vigil. Um, They say the March on Washington. They say the march across the bridge, um, you know, from Selma in in Alabama. Um, They say uh, Ferguson, right? They say these moments that are really clear that are trigger points to creating social change. And they oftentimes are these visible moments. And part of what this framework does is it accepts that, but it also challenges us to go beyond that because not all of us can be Um, frontline responders or disruptors, which are two roles that we often think about when people are engaging in these visible outward ways. But as we saw during the pandemic last summer, you know, it it coincided with the uprisings in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And a lot of folks didn't feel comfortable being out on the streets. You know, they would if they were immunocompromised, if they were caring for people, they just didn't feel comfortable being out there. But they also really aligned with the values of the movement and wanted to engage. And so that's where I think folks saw other roles that they could play a role in, play a part in. So for example, um, many folks played the role of caregivers. And so mm-hmm. what that means is that um, folks would actually care for the frontline responders who were going out every single night on the streets. So they might offer them water. They might make sure if they knew them personally that they were eating properly, right? Um, they would ask, what do you need, you know, in order to sustain yourself, right? And play that role of a caregiver. Um, other folks played the role of a storytellers. So documenting what was happening in that moment and sharing those stories with their own communities. So it could be people who were writing, archiving, um, actually filming, right? Um, and finding different mediums to share the energy of what was happening last summer. Mm-hmm. Um Still other people were playing the role of visionaries. So saying, you know, where are we headed? That's what visionaries do. They tell us about our North Star. So we saw a lot of visionaries talking about defunding the police and redistributing resources to communities in need for education, for health, and other reasons. So providing a vision for how to understand what was happening. 
Um, we also saw folks who um, were in this moment, it, particularly last summer, playing the role of um, builders. And so we started to see the outgrowth of a lot of organizations and coalitions starting to think about what is our role as builders if we are committed to addressing anti-Black racism. And this happened across sectors. So in the corporate sector, for example, companies started putting out pledges um, to address anti-Black racism. They started to actually provide funding and support to Black-owned businesses and Black-led um, organizations, right? And so um, building programs, building initiatives. So in all these different ways, folks played roles um, in, um, in concert in order to advance this belief that anti-Black racism exists in this country, it needs to be rooted out, it needs to be addressed and confronted, and we all have a role to play in it. Some of us are on the streets, some of us are in our workplaces, some of us are in our homes, but we're all playing a particular role in order to advance that vision. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, awesome. Can we, is it cool if we go through each of them and sort of give, I know you just gave some examples as it relates to these more recent movements, but um yeah, sort of just defining each of them uh, and sort of broad strokes, uh, mm-hmm. what what each of these roles contain within them. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it often helps to think about the roles in, you know, relationship in relationship to a particular movement or a mm-hmm. campaign or a cause, because yeah. I think the examples come a little faster. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, some general some general definitions, of course. So um, I'll start with frontline responders. And so frontline responders are people who are really able to stay very calm during crises and also Mm. are able to marshal resources and um, responses to deal with the crisis. And so we think of these folks as the go-to person, you know, when something really traumatic happens in a community, this person is going to be able to give us um, sort of the, the roadmap to respond to make sure that folks feel safe, um, that they they have what they need and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, then um, visionaries, um, as I mentioned earlier, are really the folks who see the North Star. They are the ones who can um, articulate where we're headed. So instead of talking just a, with words like justice, right, they're able to talk about um, uh, they're able to use language that's very evocative. So I often think of Dr. King and how he would use such evocative language to describe what it meant when we have justice for Black communities in this country, right? So right. they are inspiring. They remind us of where we're headed, especially when we feel lost. And visionaries work really well with builders and experimenters, which are two other roles in the framework. Um, Builders are the folks who are really um, taking care of the scaffolding of whatever it is that we need to build. Um, They are like working on the building blocks. They're putting the Legos together, you know. Um, they, They are the ones who can say, okay, I see your vision, visionary, but I can get you there. Because I know what needs to be put together. I know the program. I know the building blocks. I know the tasks. So they're able to um, get their task lists and their runs of show and Excel lists together to build something. And experimenters also are really 
great partners with visionaries because experimenters are the people who take a bit of risk. They are ready to innovate. They're ready to find out of the box ways in which to handle solution or to handle situations. And so they work really well with visionaries as well. Um, and then weavers. Weavers are folks that, you know, um, are able to see the through lines of connection. So they can say, um, you know, we have an issue here that we need to deal with, and it seems like it affects a particular group of people. But I actually see how it affects all these other groups of people, too, and I can bring them together. Um, they can do that with ideas, with resources, with groups of people, and even more. So they are the the glue that holds um, a lot of the ecosystem together. Um, caregivers and healers are two other um, parts of the framework. And again, they sound a little similar, but they're different. So caregivers are really providing care and nourishment to people that they know in their ecosystem, whereas healers are, have a look a little bit of a zoom out approach. And they're looking at how injustice and inequity has an intergenerational impact on communities. And so they are bringing to the fore ideas around rest or ancestral healing or somatic healing in order to actually provide ways for groups of people to heal. Um, and then finally, um, disruptors. Um, disruptors are folks who are also taking some risk because what they are doing is, is engaging in actions that might make others uncomfortable. So think of disruptors as people who are actually, you know, leading a rally, right, with a bullhorn, who are perhaps stopping traffic um, because they're trying to get a point across, um, who are ready to do things that others might be uncomfortable with, but they are very clear and very strategic about how their actions are connected to the vision. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last two roles are storytellers and guides. So storytellers are um, people who um, are able to use different mediums and formats, art, music, dance, movement, in order to convey histories of people that we don't hear. Um, lived experience, ideas in, you know, ways that we can visualize and see. So people who are, you know, designing murals about gentrification in on city walls, right? Um, people who are able to convey through a play um, why it is that we need to be thinking about the movement for Black lives. And then finally, guides are folks um, who are um, people who are helping us see the way ourselves. So they've usually played one of the roles in the ecosystem and they're playing a guiding role for someone else who is stepping into that particular role. So those are the 10 roles really quickly. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and a little bit of what they all do. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I wonder too, I have a sort of unofficial tagline for this podcast, which is um, fix yourself to fix the world. And I, I wonder how much you find yourself when working in these spaces and especially with young people and people are asking, what is it that I'm supposed to do? What can I do? Like how much of this process is about actually figuring out who you are as a person? And maybe that's like a big gap for us because I think, I mean, in this case, but in all other cases, right, we live in this sort of black and white society and we have an idea about who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do and we're following a role and we have these labels and I wonder how much you come across the experience of someone being like oh shit actually who am I you know and maybe that's where I need to start um I think 
I think, Anya, you totally hit the nail on the head with that one. I mean, I absolutely agree with you because what can we really do if we don't know ourselves at some level, right? Especially if we're talking about um, issues that are so, um, so important to us and to people around us. So this resource, I think one of the reasons it resonates is because it is a self-awareness tool at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, right? Um, It's really about, you know, a lot of the folks who use this resource already know the issues. They, you know, they are like, yes, I agree that we need to focus on climate change and addressing it. Yes, I agree that immigration and immigrant rights are important. They kind of know the issues, but they're trying to figure out how they can play a part in advancing that issue. And so that needs to come back to us, right? We need to do a little bit of that self-awareness and that self-reflection and that work, that inner work in order to actually be really effective in addressing the issues that we care about. So fixing, um, I think it's, it's definitely important to think about, um, what is it that I come, uh, why, why is it, I should say, why is it that I care about these issues, right? What, it, what draws me to them? So that's one way of thinking about yourself. Um, also, what are my innate skills? What are the things I'm already good at? What are the things I want to learn and grow into? And so it's absolutely important to do that self-awareness and that self-reflection. And I often encourage people to um, utilize the framework, you know, once a quarter. I myself utilize it often because I recognize um, how I've changed. Mm -hmm. And I also, I'm able to be better because, you know, just to give a concrete example, um, most of my social change work has been in the role of the frontline responder. So I, I am one of those people who does rapid response work. But one of the things I've recognized over time, and I think this framework often helps people recognize it, is that being a frontline responder is um, extremely draining work and it can burn you out. You can get extremely um, affected by it, right? And so one thing I have learned over time and experience is that I need to find another role to play. And so that self-awareness of, okay, I'm getting burnt out, Sometimes that leads people to leave movements. It leads people to leave their spaces because they're tired of the toxicity of sometimes doing this work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this framework can offer you a different way of thinking about it. Like, okay, maybe I don't think I can play this role anymore because it's not good for me, but there's something else I can get into. I don't have to like leave um, altogether, right? I can find another route. So absolutely, um, I think this is all about self-awareness and getting yourself in right relationship, like I said earlier. And when you're able to do that, um, making some of these choices is not as challenging. Right. Yeah. And I would imagine it's both the sort of self-development and self-realization, but then also sort of listening to you talk about all these different roles, you know, they're not operating independently or like in some sort of vacuum, like this, this role works well with this role. Um, and I wonder too, if have you seen a lot of sort of like community being created around this and people recognizing, oh, we don't have to all do the same thing. And in fact, that's maybe not super beneficial. And if we can find spaces and create spaces where people have all of these different roles, then that's sort of the most productive. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you, this is a, a multi-dimensional resource, so you can do it for yourself, just like we just have talked about for self-awareness purposes. You can also right. do it in terms of like your organization or your ecosystem, whatever that is. And mm -hmm. you can zoom out for, uh, and do it, um, as like a coalition or a movement can look at itself through the through the lens of this ecosystem. So for the second, like if you're an organization or a workplace, um, you can absolutely utilize it to say, and I've seen this, folks will map themselves out at an organization or workplace and it'll end up that um, most people are builders. That's usually the case. Mm -hmm. Like we come to these this work <laughs> oftentimes because we're like, oh, I know how to do the task, right? Um, but there are no visionaries. And so it le leads us to the question of, oh, maybe this is why, like, we don't, sometimes people say, why are we doing this? Like, what is it for? Those questions keep coming up, right, in this particular workplace. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because we haven't identified somebody who can really lean into the visionary role to, so that we're not just like building programs and projects, but it's in service to something that we care about that's really right. up here, right? Um, or there'll be organizations that say, you know, we played like a disruptor role for four years, you know, um, particularly groups that were working in the time of the Trump administration. I would hear this often, like we've been disruptors, we've been we've been resistors. Right. Um, yeah. What what do we do now? Right. Not that everything is wonderful. Right. All of a sudden, just because we have a change in who occupies the White House. But what is our stance now as an organization? What is our role? So this can help us figure out how we move from even as organizations, one role to another. Right. I'm curious to hear what your sort of frustrations are as far as the, um, I think we're doing a lot of things right, but I think we're also doing a lot of things wrong as far as like social justice and identitarian movements. And I wonder if you get, if people come to you and, you know, maybe they tried to fulfill one of these roles that was maybe a bit more abstract and like people are getting shamed or canceled or, um, for not doing like the quote unquote right thing or the thing that everybody should be doing. Um, and I'm just sort of curious how you navigate that because I think oftentimes most of us, again, are like coming from a good place. We have a good heart. Um, and those of us who, I mean, I went through this too. It was like, I started just doing things because that was what people said I should be doing. Um, and eventually I started to like take a few steps back and be like, I don't know though. I feel like if I'm really coming from a place of honesty and authenticity and like kindness and understanding, some of this makes sense to me, but some of it, um, doesn't. And how, like, what, what do you see as far as this sort of like cultural sort of shaming, you must do this in order to make a difference kind of a thing? Yeah. Well, you know, I think is um, it's not surprising that even in social justice work, there are aspects of the culture that is really challenging, that is really toxic. And you hear this from people who work in nonprofits or work in non uh, movement spaces, that there is um, this, you know, there are so many aspects to this culture, but I don't even think you have to work in it full time. Even folks who are adjacent to it or who are, you know, getting involved here and there on campaigns, they see this too, right? And some of these, um, you know, some of these uh, types of 
um, the ways in which this culture shows up is really rooted in white supremacist culture too. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, copy paste of what we are seeing around us. So like one is competition, right? Like there's this, um, there's a model of scarcity, like there isn't enough. So we have to compete with each other. Um, there is this focus on purity politics. Like we have to have the most down, most woke analysis all the time. And if we don't, we get shamed or we get told we're not really like part of the movement, right? Um, there's this sense of um, like a cult of personality that we have to perform, like you said, in a particular way. We have to show up in in a particular way. Um, and I think, and, and also I would say um, a standard of productivity too. Like we have to keep producing all the time in order to have value, you know, right. in this society, right? So all of these things happen. And I think that the whole call in, call out, cancel culture that we're also seeing is, you know, embodies some of those trends that we've been seeing for some time. So it's not surprising when all of that is swirling around that people feel again, do I really want to play a role here in any of this? You know, like, is this for me? Um, And so I do think though, if you are a little bit um, focused on taking the time to understand what your value set is, right? What is it that you even care about? Like, why are you here? That first question you asked me, right? Like, what is your point of entry? into doing this work that's really connected to your values once you when you do that analysis and then you say um i don't actually have to do what everyone else is doing right i can actually identify a role that suits me suits my personality suits my skills and my strengths and suits my lived experiences Um, And that might not be very visible to everyone else. It might be something that's in the background a little bit. It might be something that very few people are doing, but it's so much more connected to who I am. And it helps us then weather the conflicts that are just embedded in this type of work and this type of culture, right? It helps us understand those conflicts better, build the capacity to deal with them better, um, identify more effective ways of responding. And so I don't think all of that stuff will go away all of a sudden, right? Those cultural trends that I talked about. But I think that it's really about what is your orientation to it? What's your positionality to it? What is your capacity to deal with it? I think all of that can help you in dealing with um, some of those, some of those aspects of social justice culture. Right. And I was going to say too, going back to the point that we talked about, I mean, one, figuring out what role or what multiple roles you play in this world and doing that work. You know, I think when I got really caught up in it was right sort of before I was coming to terms with who I was. And I was in my late twenties and like going through this dark night of the soul. And I was just like, I don't really know. Like I've just lived this life according to like what I thought I was supposed to do. And I'm so lost and so confused and so unhappy. Um, and so I got more sucked into that sort of, um, you know, overly black and white defined way of like being an activist and making a difference. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I did that work to figure out who I was that even, I mean, because I definitely get like people call me out and want to cancel me because I just want to like bring a more nuanced point of view to the discussion. And I think before that was 
debilitating and I felt really horrible about myself. But sort of the more that I've done this work of figuring out who I am, like the more Mm -hmm. comfortable. Um, So I think that's partially also why I think the roles are so imperative because it's like, you can at least say, you know what, that doesn't feel right, but I know this other thing does. Like, this yeah. is the, you know? Yeah, um, I love that. Yeah. I think that work that you did, right, that that self-attunement, listening to your voice inside, like, everything crowds that voice out, right? The world is intending to crowd out our inner voices as much as possible. So part of being an activist is actually connecting to and listening to and being shaped by that inner voice. And that does take work. It literally means sometimes you have to stop the noise and stop the chaos and take the pause. And we're told also that we should not pause, right? In this culture, like it's like, it's go, go, go. (laughs) And you're not supposed to take a pause and much less take a pause to think about yourself, right? That's then seen as like selfish. Um, so doing that work though is so critical so that you can list because social change work demands us and requires us, right. Um, to be really stepping into our most powerful selves, our bravest selves sometimes. And so in order to do that, to bring forth that courage, we really do need to tap into our values, who we are, our roles and our connections with other people. Um, so, Armed with all of that, I think we can be the the warriors that, you know, we hope to be. Right. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I wasn't really planning on asking you about this, but it just came to mind. I, I think a lot about the role that sort of like anger and trauma play in social justice. And one of my um, heroes has always been uh, Larry Kramer, who founded ACT UP. My dad's gay, and I always just like that was a movement that I feel like I was always identified with. And I just so appreciated it, the way that he, uh, Larry Kramer approached things and sort of came from a place of, of anger and sort of fury and rage and that that created so much change. And I think I always get confused because I think it's, um, I think our anger and the trauma that we've experienced and the injustice that we've experienced is what often pushes us to do this work and what often is just like, I can't take it anymore, I need to do that. But then I think sometimes I see that we get stuck there um, and that the anger becomes the the identity or becomes the movement and it, and it, it stops being about actual justice or equality or peace and more about retribution or um, compensatory injustice. And I'm, I'm curious how you navigate that space as well. Yeah, I really appreciate that question. And also your, your own experiences with that. Um, you know, I think, you know, I know folks have heard this, right? Anger is a clarifying emotion, but it often masks something else. And so sometimes it is the way, it's the way that we express pain. It's the way that we express confusion. It's the way we express overwhelm. It's the way we express not being seen and heard. And so I think part of it is um, to recognize that. And again, going back to like this inner work, right? So recognizing Mm -hmm. that, you know, as I said, um, you know, outrage is something that I often feel that leads me to actually get involved. It mobilizes me when I am angry about the separation of children and families, when I am angry about the rise in anti-Asian hate, when I'm angry about the way that, you know, women are not um, paid the same as men, whatever it is, right? When that anger comes up in me, it actually um, 
is a real clarifier, like, oh, these are my values. This is what I care about. And it also is a truth teller in terms of um, really reminding me what is important to me. But then I think the next set of questions, right, is um, staying in anger is not always the best way to react, like you said. I mean, we even in our own personal relationships, right, like when I yeah. react in anger, I am not my best self. And I know that later. Later on, I'll look back and say, okay, that was an anger reaction, and I need to figure out a better way of handling that, right? In the same way, if you're angry about an issue, it feels obviously more uh, self-righteous to respond in anger when it's an issue rather than like a person uh, that you're responding to. But it still should, you know, we should still do that extra second, third questioning of what is behind the anger, um, what does the anger want me to do, right? What is it trying to tell me? Yes, I get clarity about my values and what's important and I'm mobilized and energized, but how do I channel that, all that energy into um, something that is really powerful and something that's effective? And that's, again, where, you know, if you are angered and outraged by anything that's going on and you say, okay, I'm really angry about it. How do I channel that into being a storyteller? It gives you like the the point from A to B, right? right? So you can channel and harness all of that energy, the mobilizing, clarifying energy to then um, embody that in a way that can really move things forward. Right. Um, yes, for sure. I agree. I, I wonder too, like, I'm sure you you come across a lot of people who feel ashamed or a sense of shame. And I think often that's because a lot of these movements often, I think, use shame as a way to get people to do something. Um, and I've, I've thought about this in, in so many different ways and thinking of like, is there any context in which shame is an effective, like a long-term effective strategy? Um, and I think like maybe if we lived in smaller communities or like hunter-gatherer groups, um, and when we knew the people that were quote unquote shaming us and they could work with us to do something better that it would work. And I, I just, I get a little taken aback how often shame is invoked in these sort of much larger, broader movements when we don't know each other and we don't know where the person is coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially, you know, like, I think that's, it's, it's sort of toxic in a way because it does perpetuate that, like, well, let me just do that thing because someone told me I should, um, and we're not actually moving forward or making any kind of real productive change because we're just operating from this like weird shamed position. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even as you were talking, I was thinking about, well, how does shame show up? Right. And I think it shows up in so many different ways. Like you said, um, you know, shame actually is a tactic that movements sometimes utilize to shift power, right? So you can think about like economic shaming, or you can think of the shaming of, you know, public officials on a position they held, right? So oftentimes yeah. we do utilize shame as an effective tactic if it is around shifting power or changing policy. Now, that's different from what I think you're alluding to, which is when shame shows up as a way that we 
make, uh, we ostracize or exclude certain types of people, right? Um, or we, um, we decide that someone on Twitter is not worthy of being there anymore because of some position they took or something they said. So we're all going to come after them in order to shame them and get them out of this public space, right? That happens too. Yeah. I also think that shame shows up. Um, I see this in some of the work that we do on solidarity where, you know, people sometimes feel a sense of shame in terms of the positionalities that they hold. So, for example, if you are someone who holds a range of privileges, right, if you um for example, race privilege, if you're, if you're white or uh, the privilege of colorism for certain people of color or the privilege mm-hmm. of caste, the privilege of class, um, the privilege of citizenship, um, that when people hold these privileges, they often feel ashamed of them and feel that they can't really enter into spaces social justice spaces because of those privileges. So I think it's important for us to unpack all of that, right? And recognize when shaming is a tactic to shift power and when shaming is actually a strategy to exclude and ostracize people. And it strikes me that if we're operating from the latter part of motivation, that we're not really engaging in solidarity, that we're not really engaging in social change. Right. Yeah. And I always think about too, for me, it's like, I hear a lot of people who are white, who are privileged. They'll sort of say like, you know, I'm not in the job that I want to be in. I'm not happy. I'm not Mm -hmm. this. I'm not that. And then sort of um, end it with, but I understand these are kind of like white people problems and I'm privileged. And it's interesting to watch them use the fact that they're privileged as a way to not use their privilege productively, um, which is really fascinating. It's like, if we can step back for a second and be like, actually, I don't know if power and privilege are inherently bad. They're bad when they're used exclusionarily and they're bad when we use them to promote injustice. Um, But actually, you not taking action be about your happiness or your life or whatever it is because you're privileged is like Mm -hmm. literally the opposite thing that you should be doing. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, thinking about how do we um, obviously acknowledge privilege and positionality and then how do we exploit them? Right. That's really important. Right. How do we utilize them to create change? If we're, if we recognize them and then we stay passive, because we're afraid that we might be shamed or we're worried that, you know, we don't have a role to play um, or we just want to be invisible. That is obviously the opposite of using privilege properly. The way to utilize privilege and positionality is actually to take some risks with it. So, for example, um, if you are someone who has, say, the privilege of um, access, like you have access to, say, um, philanthropy, right? And you are an, an, a person who has access to people with wealth. Then one way to utilize that privilege is actually to open the doors of those philanthropists to organizations or activists who actually don't have any of that access, Right. It, and, and step out of the way, open the door and step out of the way, right? That's a way of, of acknowledging the privilege and in this case, utilizing it in a way that actually moves forward the causes that you believe in and gets you out of the way so that other people can actually enter and take the space and do what they need to do. Right. Yeah. And also, 
I'm sure it's like, I mean, there are so many messed up things in our world. There are so many messed up things just in this country. So many people that, you know, need to be fought for and assisted and so much injustice in all these different areas. Um, do you also sort of find yourself telling people like, it's okay if you can't put your energy into every single social justice movement that we have and to yeah. sort of pick the one? Yeah. No, absolutely. Look, there are so many challenges out there, right? And um, it's and, and that's why just as we shouldn't be playing every single role um, in one given day or one given year or on one yeah. given cause, it's the same thing. Like, it's hard to pick and identify all the things that we could work on, which is why, like, when you think about the fact that we're, that social change happens in an ecosystem, it actually should be something that makes us feel better, right? There are so many ecosystems out there that are working yeah. on a range of social justice issues, right? So we don't have to tackle every single one of them. But identifying the ones that connect to you the most, that you have a stake in, that you resonate with, that you could probably use your privilege to advance and change and contribute to, right? Those are some of the threshold questions to ask when identifying okay, like for the first six months of this year, I'm going to actually lean in to this particular cause, right? And then I'm going to pause, reflect, learn. I'm going to then think about the next six months. And it's not that I'm going to leave what I did earlier. I'm going to keep building on it, but maybe I can also transfer some energy and learning into something else that's important to me. That's why I say that social justice and social change work is not a fad or a trend or a response to a hashtag. It actually has to be a daily practice, like other daily practices that we build into our lives. Right. And something that's actually authentic and inspiring, too. I don't really think we can do much of anything if we're we're not like Absolutely. actually, you know, authentically passionate and inspired by it. And connected um, to it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, you thought, see, you thought we wouldn't be able to talk for an hour. I, we, could probably, we could probably keep going. Um, but That's I know you have to you're run. Really, you're really good at asking questions. That's why I can see why now you're, you're a storyteller. <laughs> I try. Yeah, I definitely resonate with several of those different, different roles. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap up, if you could tell everyone where to find you to learn more about the work that you're doing yeah. um, and support you. And then I also ask all of my guests if they could recommend one book to the audience that was like really instrumental or inspirational to you in your life. What was that? Um, and we often I have a, a Patreon and we do a book club um, several times a year and we pick books that from the guest recommendation. So, oh, how nice. We might all read okay. it together. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that. Um so if folks are interested in learning more about the work that I do, you can go to uh, www.buildingmovement.org, which is the organization I'm with. You can also find me on Instagram um, at Deepa V. Iyer. And I'm actually doing a series now where I'm breaking down every single role each month. And so right. we just finished two and we're on to, I think, builders in April. Um and in terms of books to read, that's a really hard question because I am an avid reader and I love books, right? So yeah. it's like you're asking me to pick like one book that has I know, had an impact on my life. <laughs> you can recommend more than one. I It's funny because if someone asked me this question, I'd have this, I like hate picking favorites. I'd be like so mad at myself, but a book, one of the books, one of the many books or a couple. <laughs> okay, let's see. I would say... Um, well, it's funny because um, I immediately, I have a 10-year-old, and so I thought about books that we read together and mm -hmm. books that we like, you know. Um, 
I am going to say, well, I don't know. You all probably don't read children's books, do you? Well, but you can still recommend it. We don't have to pick it for the book club necessarily. I love that you were going to recommend a children's book. No one's ever done that before. So that's kind of Really? Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I'll recommend, um, there's actually so many. So one, um, books that one book that I really like reading with my child is a book called Sylvia and Aki. Um, and it's a, it's a book, I guess it's more like middle, uh, middle grade range, but it's a book about, um, the Japanese American incarceration and, um, how a family, uh, was incarcerated and had to leave their home and a Mexican American family moved into that home and took care of the home and also waged a fight of their own in the legal context because at the time um, schools were, as you know, um, still segregated. Um, and so it's a wonderful story and, um, I really recommend it. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate having this conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Definitely could have keep, kept talking for a long time. I always love when people are self-conscious about, um, like, how are we going to talk for an hour? I have nothing to say. And then I feel like I work my magic on them. Um, no, I don't take that much credit. They're actually just interesting. Just need to be asked the right questions. Um, I'm going to play you out today with a song called Tribe by Danny Addison. I think you will understand why I've chosen the song to play when you hear it. Um, again, if you would like to support the podcast and uh, get a little bit deeper into this community, meet people like you, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is the way to do that. Not only are you donating to help me uh, financially in creating this podcast in the time and energy it takes to do it, the equipment, etc., um, but also in exchange, you get things like a private Discord server, patron-led workshops where you can learn from other patrons or perhaps teach patrons if you'd like. Um, a, did I say book club already? <laughs> book club if I didn't. <laughs> Stickers, t-shirt, a community contact list, and I'm probably forgetting stuff, but lots and lots of opportunities to connect. I appreciate you all listening. I appreciate you all spending this time with me, sharing episodes with your friends, posting on social media, reading the podcast on iTunes, whatever feels authentic to you to support me feels amazing to me. So thank you. Enjoy the song and I will catch you next week. star on a movie screen Be the black or be the white Don't be in between Be a fighter, pick a side Pick a team Now be brand new Shout outside my demon's door I'm burning, I'm burning I'm screaming through this megaphone I'm yearning, I'm yearning In the fires of my people